I have a, an interesting task today. <laughs> We're in a section in Hebrews where we finally get to Melchizedek, you know, like the, the long-anticipated sermon on Melchizedek. Um, he, he just sort of shows up out of nowhere. You can go, fun fact, these are, these are your hymnals underneath your, your chairs. Do you know there's an index? You can go to the back of the hymnal, and if you want to sing a hymn about heaven, you know, you can look up heaven, and it'll tell you, hey, you got these hymns. You want to sing a hymn about Jesus, you can you know, go sing these. You want to sing a hymn about, with regard to, to, to uh, you know, even Abraham, the God of Abraham praise, right? Like, you can go find that hymn. You know what you can't find a hymn on? Melchizedek. Hey, Taylor, put, put together a, a worship set about Melchizedek. Um, so he, he earned his money today. Uh, anyway, we're, we're, we're looking at this passage here in Hebrews 7, and, and, I, and I have the unique task to try to help you see the relevance of Melchizedek. And uh, I, I hope you're pleasantly surprised. I, I hope that you go, wow. I, I mean, some of you, I'm going to wager You've never even heard of Melchizedek. Uh, maybe, maybe if you've been with us through this Hebrew series, you, you heard about him a, a few weeks ago. But before that, no, I, you never even heard this guy's name before. So how is he relevant? And, and what's his tie-in with the big picture, uh, especially with Jesus, who we're told, uh, and we looked at last week, is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. All right, so... So with, with that as our, our segue, let me just pick up in chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 10. So, so uh, I'm going to read. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Fun, right? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for Melchizedek. Thank you for, for how he shows us uh, the, the glory and uh, the goodness of Jesus. Uh, help us to see that even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, 
there's going to be a lot of, uh, of obviously Old Testament context, and we've made that point again and again in our Hebrews series, how uh, Hebrews is just drenched with the Old Testament. And so we're going to look um, at some passages in Genesis to see uh, how great Abraham was. And then we're going to look and see uh, how great Melchizedek was ultimately so that we can see how great Jesus is, right? Still, still today. Uh, so we're going to start with Abraham. We'll talk about Melchizedek um, and then how they point us to Jesus. So let's, let's look at Abraham. Uh, it's important <clears throat> for us to just have some, some background about Abraham. Uh, and some of you can remember when you were in VBS uh, singing about Father Abraham, right? And, and all, his, all his sons, all his children. Uh, and he's called Father Abraham for good reason. Um, Jewish people still today um, call themselves the children of Abraham. Uh, they look to him as the, the father of their, not only just their religion, but their, their race. Uh, and, and this is in fulfillment of God's promise to make, us this, make this great nation come from Abraham's descendants. Uh, so who were Abraham's children? Well, um, God promised that Abraham would have nations come from him, not just children, but, but entire tribes and nations. And that promise came to Abraham when he was kind of old. So was his wife. And they heard the promise and they're like, that sounds good, great, good. We, we'd love to have children because they were struggling with infertility. And some of you know uh, how painful that can be. And they're waiting and they're expecting and they're waiting and they're trusting and they're waiting some more. And finally, they just decided, we've been waiting a long time. Maybe we didn't hear the plan accurately. Maybe, maybe there was some provision in there for us to take matters in our own hands. So Sarah says, Abraham, why don't you take my servant Hagar and, and go have a child with her? And, and that will be the promised child that God promised us. And that's, they, they did that. And Hagar had a son through Abraham named Ishmael. But God said, no, that's not the son. That's not the one I promised you. You need to continue to be patient and to wait. So they waited, and they were patient, and they were waited, and they were faithful. And then finally, um, sort of like as, as comic relief almost, because you know Sarah laughs at the prospect that in her old age, in her barrenness, she would have a son. And sure enough, Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. And then Isaac had his sons, uh, his children, um, Jacob being one of them, uh, Jacob then becomes Israel, and Israel, uh, J Jacob has his sons, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel. And in those 12 tribes, there's, there's the son uh, Levi, there's the son Judah. Uh, Levi's kids end up becoming people like Moses and Aaron, uh, and uh, Judah's kids end up becoming people like David and all the kings. So you've got the priests coming from Levi, you've got the kings coming from Judah, and, and so on and so on. So this is all in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. You can go all the way back to, uh, to Genesis 14 after, uh, and this is what's referred to here in Hebrews 7. Um, and, and just to set up the context for you, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot was living in Sodom. And you know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, so these are not good places to live. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and some other cities more like governors, but they call them kings. 
they were at war with another group uh, of kings or governors, and this army with Sodom, where Lot was, was defeated by these other kings, kings like this guy who we're going to hear about, Kedorlamor, all right? Um, and now Abraham gets a call to go and rescue his son. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 14. After Abraham's return from the defeat of Kedorlamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, this is where Melchizedek shows up, like right out of the blue. Melchizedek's never been mentioned before in Genesis, in the Bible. And all of a sudden, in Genesis 14, he shows up out of the blue. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor or creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. This is the passage in Genesis that Hebrews 7 is, is talking about. Hebrews, if you think of Hebrews as a sermon of an, in and of itself, is a, is a sermon about Genesis 14. I'm giving you a sermon about a sermon about Genesis 14, okay? So this is the account of, with just, um, I don't know, 300 and, and a handful of Abram's men, his army, they went after these four kings who had defeated five kings, among them Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, with his just 300 guys, defeated these four kings. And then he meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils of their, conf of, their, of their war, their defeat, right? So just setting up for you this scene where Abram is blessed by Melchizedek. It's one of the many times in Genesis that we hear this refrain again and again, like a steady drumbeat you know, in Genesis of how God blesses uh, Abraham. And um, you, you can see another blessing in Genesis 22. This is another passage that we've looked at before in Hebrews where God makes an oath. He swears by himself. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, that I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Abraham is just going to, his, his, his descendants are going to fill the earth. Sand of the seashore, stars of the heaven, that's Abraham's kids. So he's Father Abraham, and, and, and this is sort of referencing all of his progeny. And so many uh, today still, even in the, in, in the context of world religions, look to Abraham as a founding father. So, you know, Abraham is the father of Ishmael. And Ishmael is the founder, you know, is the progenitor of all of, like, uh, of Muhammad. And so all of Islam looks to Ishmael, looks to Abraham as, you know, uh, they're, they're descended from that. that. That's their lineage. And then, of course, you have the Jewish community 
looking to, to Abraham, uh, in, their, in that case through Jacob. And then, of course, you have Christianity uh, looking to Abraham as the one who was justified by faith. Who, you know, we, we look at our lineage there too. Jesus, of course, had Abraham as a great, 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 great grandfather. So some of you, um, you know, are old enough to remember a really difficult PR campaign. Um, and, and, that's, and it made me think of this because this is, this is the challenge facing the author of Hebrews, is to help the audience make a turn, um, make a pivot to see as great as Abraham was, there's somebody greater. As, as impressive as Abraham's um, descendants, the amount of his descendants, uh, the promises, the blessings that he got, there was somebody greater than Abraham. Uh, and, and this is the challenge of the author of Hebrews is to help these people who are reading this and help us see that Abraham was just a placeholder. He, he was not the foundation. Um, and and you know, if you lived, uh, if you were old enough in 1985, here's a little, little parallel for you. It's, I don't know. I try to come up with stuff to try to make Melchizedek relevant. How am I going to do this? Some of you remember, in 1985, when I was 15 years old, Coca-Cola got the bright idea, you know what? We're going to give you new Coke. We're going to take the Coke that you love that you drink, that, that you, you, you get your caffeine buzz on, that, that you, know, you smile, that you give the world a Coke, you, know, you do all that stuff. We're going to take your Coke away. We're going to give you this, new Coke, because it's better. Why is it better? Because we say so. We're, we're going we're to kind of impose this on you. And, uh, and it's just, it's, it goes down in history as one of the greatest sort of marketing disasters, corporate marketing disasters that you can research. Um, so it was so bad, in fact, that um, it, this was in April of 1985, 79 days later, because of the just, <laughs> the level of pushback, just cultural pushback, global pushback, the amount of negativity that, that um, Coca-Cola, the company, received because they were forcing new Coke on everybody. No options. You don't get to keep your, your old Coke. We're giving you new Coke. They pulled the old Coke from the shelves. 79 days later, they said, okay, you can have your old Coke back. <laughs> and everybody was just joyful, relieved. At the, you know, the amount of thank you notes that came in to corporate, this was before email, I think, Anyway, um, people were, were, were so excited, so glad. And, and in fact, there was even, uh, I, I saw a note that ABC, the, 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 um, the anchor for ABC News at that time was Peter Jennings, and they interrupted General Hospital in July of 1985 with a news flash. You get your old Coke back. You get your, they called it Coca-Cola Classic. So what, what happened? Um, corporate had done their research. I mean, this wasn't, they didn't think it was a dumb move. Uh, they thought it was smart because they actually had some taste tests, blind taste tests, and people preferred the new Coke over the old Coke. So they thought, this is good, this is good. What they did not account for was just people's identity. 
with Coke. This is a part of me. This is important to me. I've got, I've got history here. I, you know, I, I, my first date, we shared a Coke float, you know, at the, the soda fountain or whatever. And, 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 and we always drink Coke. And we're not Pepsi people. We're Coke. And don't force this new stuff. They just failed to account for the emotional and, and personal and subjective thing. I mean, the objective was clear, blind taste tests or whatever. So, so this is the challenge, to try to move the audience, to, to move people off of their identity, off of their, um, their, their loyalty to Abraham, to embrace something new. To see that Melchizedek is better than Abraham. And, and you, you can imagine the current uh, that Hebrews is swimming against, given how prominent, how central, how important Abraham has been. So see how great Abraham was, right? But this is the challenge for the people to, to see how great Melchizedek was. So he's this king and priest. Um, and, and we look in, in Hebrews 7, how he's the king of Salem. Uh, he's the priest of the Most High God. And he met Abraham. And you know Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek blesses him. We're told in verses uh, 2 that his name, by translation of his name, is, his means king of righteousness, and he's also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. So we're looking at the greatness of Melchizedek now. Uh, his name is, a, is a, um, a, you know, two words stuck together. Melech in Hebrew is king, and Zadok is righteous or just. So, so that's an, a clue into his greatness. He's, he's the king of righteousness. And that's what his name means. His title is king of Salem, king of peace. Um, there are lots of towns named Salem, uh, according to the archaeologists and, and the scholars, but most scholars would, are, are in agreement that the particular Salem here that's mentioned ends up being Jerusalem, right? So it's this city of peace, and, and that's his title. His name means king of righteousness. His title is, is king of peace. Uh, and, and one of the main provisions of the priesthood is that the priesthood would come from the lineage of Levi, from that, that tribe. Um, so Moses and Aaron you know, were Levites. Aaron becomes the priest, and all of the priesthood basically is descended from, from that line. Uh, and if you weren't a Levite, you weren't allowed to be a priest. And furthermore, the priests, Levites, were not uh, royalty. They weren't allowed to be kings. These, these were, there was this line that separated the two of them. So it would have been impossible, um, according to Mosaic law and code, to have a priest who was simultaneously a king or a king who was simultaneously a priest. Uh, but when you look at Melchizedek, there's no reference at all to his lineage. We're told he's without father or mother or um, genealogy. He just kind of shows up out of nowhere, bearing authority and changing the story. Uh, and I, I can uh, remember you know I'm a Star Wars nut. Um, I, was, I was looking at um, Instagram, and there was this interview with George Lucas. So, oh, that's interesting. And, and, and the interviewer was asking George Lucas, 
hey, tell us about Yoda. Who's Yoda? You know, background on all the characters. And I was just kind of fascinated by George Lucas's candor when talking about Yoda. I mean, you know, it's, it's the Star Wars universe. He's got backstories for everything and everybody and, you know, it's all these spinoff series and so on. But when it comes to Yoda, here's what George Lucas said. I never really figured out where he came from. He's a mystery character. He has no background. He comes and he goes. He's the subversive, secret, mysterious stranger that enters the film and then exits the screen. And I go, that's Melchizedek. He's this mysterious, subversive character that we don't know where he's from. We don't know where he goes. Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 are the only two other places in the Bible where we hear about Melchizedek besides Hebrews. And he just kind of comes and he goes. And so, but, he's, but he's great. Why is he great? Well, because of Abraham. You look at how great Abraham was and Melchizedek's greater. You look at Melchizedek, he's a king and a priest. Nobody has done that before. Michael Kruger is one of the commentators that, that I've been using in this series. He says Melchizedek was both king and priest at the same time. No other figure in the Bible ever held both offices until Jesus. Oh, okay, now, now we're getting a clue into the greatness of Melchizedek. Um, basically, you know, you see the greatness of Melchizedek because of his name and because of where he comes from, and he's the king, and he's a priest, just like Jesus. And then you see the greatness of Melchizedek, and this tithe, the whole discussion about how Abraham meets Melchizedek, gives him a tenth of all that he had gathered in defeating these other kings and rescuing Lot. Uh, and then those descendants, um, were, you know, there's sort of this long discussion here at the end of this passage in chapter 7 about how Levi uh, and the tribe of Levi were different from the rest of uh, Jacob's sons because all the other sons were given land. All the other tribes had land allotted to them in the promised land except Levi. Because what God wanted the, the Levites to do was to um, take care of the worship, take care of the tabernacle, then the temple. They didn't have land. So there was this provision that the other 11 tribes would tithe to the Levites to, prov to provide for them because they were busy all the time taking care of the ordinances for worship. So what's really fascinating about Melchizedek is that we're told that not only does Abraham tithe to Melchizedek, indicating Abraham is demonstrating Melchizedek's authority over him. But there's this kind of interesting discussion too about how Levi, who was in the loins of Abraham, not even born yet, but in union with his you know, great-grandfather, so to speak, also pays tithes to Melchizedek. The, the, the one, the tribe who gets the tithes from all the other tribes paid a tithe to Melchizedek, showing Melchizedek's superiority. This, this, this can kind of be puzzling to us because it, it speaks to corporate identity. We, we're so used to 
having our own way, having our own say. We're independent. We're, you know, um, we, 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 we think independently. Uh, we, we value our independence. But there are times, right, where, where people evaluate us, uh, judge us, relate to us based on our family, uh, based on our ethnicity, uh, based on our citizenship, where, no, we're not individuals. We're part of a group. Uh, we're, we're basically identified with someone or, or somebody else, and, and this is a real clue for us into what does it mean for us to be in Christ, to, to, to be, uh, have a corporate union with Jesus, because as much as, as, as Hebrews can teach us that, okay, well, Levi wasn't even born yet, but because his, because his grandfather, so to speak, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, so did Levi. And that makes what is true of Abraham true for Levi. And isn't this our hope as, as Christians who are united to the Christ? How Jesus could come before us, um, and even though we weren't even born yet 2,000 years ago, because we're united to him, what's true of Jesus becomes true for us. This is what it means to be united to him. To, to be in Christ means to recognize that when Jesus was on the cross, he was fulfilling the law's requirement that, that sin would be accounted for, that sin would be sentenced, that, that sin would have a consequence, that God doesn't, isn't blind to offenses, that he doesn't sweep stuff under the rug. He's not an unjust judge, he's a righteous judge. And when Jesus was on the cross, he was showing us the righteousness of God. That everything that's wrong with the world will be dealt with. That every place, that every, everything that's unfair, every, every abuse, every, every law that gets broken, none of it will go unanswered. And that's what Jesus demonstrated at the cross. So the law was fulfilled. The law's penalty was fulfilled in Christ. And when by faith, you and I are united to Jesus, the law is fulfilled. Our sins are paid for because we're united to the Christ as Christians. But not only when Jesus was on the cross where, where, was, does that union benefit us, but before the cross, when he was fulfilling the law's requirements and in keeping the law, and, and, and certainly we think in moral categories about what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. He, he did all that. But let's just boil the law down to, to, to the, the greatest law and, and what the most encompassing law is, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus fulfilled that. And when we're in Christ, when we're united to him, when we're in his loins... <laughs> that becomes true for us. It's as if you and I have kept the law, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors ourselves because Jesus did it. And then after the cross, Jesus was raised. We're raised with him. So this has all kinds of implications. And, and maybe isn't the first thing we think about because we're very individualistic as Americans. But this speaks to our corporate identity, how we need Jesus. So look at verse 9 and 10 again here in Hebrews 7, where it says, even, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What if we, 
What if we kind of had some fun with those verses and, and instead read them? One might even say that you and I ourselves who are obliged to keep the law, kept the law through Jesus. For we were in our brother Jesus when he fulfilled the law for us. Does that make sense? That's what, when, when you hear about faith in Christ, when you hear about believing in Christ, that's what we're talking about. He represents me. He's my substitute. He's my, uh, the one who stands in my place as the one who paid the penalty of the law and who kept the law for me. Um, and if that's true for you, that makes you a Christian because you're in Christ. Um, we're told also that in verse 6, this man who does not have descent uh, from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. This points to the, the, the greatness of Melchizedek, not only because he was a priest and a king, not only because he received tithes, but also because he blessed Abraham. This is the, this is the one, Abraham is the one who, who has God's repeated blessing all throughout Genesis, who, who, who Paul even comments in Galatians and says, hey, let's, let's go back to the blessing that Abraham got in Genesis. Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And, and here, I hope it's not lost on us. I hope we can kind of have that sense of shock and awe that, oh my goodness, the one whom God repeatedly said, who repeatedly blessed and said, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Now somebody is blessing him. I thought, I thought Abraham was at, at the top. No, there's somebody above him and it's Melchizedek, right? It's shocking to hear that there's someone greater than Abraham. Abraham is the one who was supposed to bless the nations, who could possibly be in a position to bless the one who would bless the world, right? Just somebody greater. And the implications here are, are hard to overstate. Like, I can't overstate this. The implication of what it means that there's somebody greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So if Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, then that means that Melchizedek was superior to Ishmael. That means that Melchizedek was superior to Muhammad. It means that Melchizedek was superior to Levi and to Moses and to Aaron. It means that Melchizedek was superior to Judah and to David and to all these other kings. And, and now here's, here's the pivot. If Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, we're told that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This means that we need to see how great Jesus is, that we have this sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, this high priest who's gone into the holy place, who is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. How can Jesus be our high priest? Um, going back to Christmas, right? He's from the tribe of Judah into the town of David. He's not a Levite. The law says he's not allowed to be a high priest. But he is because he's in a different priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. Um, this is like, all right, so, so do you know that if we 
Um, we're going to have uh, elections next year. God help us. Um, we're getting all the people declaring, entering the race. Who's going who's to run for president? Do you know that there are some requirements? To be eligible to be the president of the United States, you have to at least have three things be true of you by virtue of the United States Constitution. First thing is that you have to be born in the United States, right? You've got to be at least 35 years old, a natural born citizen, and must have lived in the United States for at least 14 years. That's, those are the three requirements from the United States Constitution. So let's say somebody comes along and says, hey, I'd like to run for president, but I, I wasn't born in the U.S. and I've only been a citizen and I've only lived in the U.S. for seven years. Everybody says, sorry, you can't, you, you can't be a you can't be president. You can't be a candidate. What do you mean? I want to be president. I'm no, sorry, you can't because the Constitution says so. Well, 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 so what about the Constitution? Why don't we change the Constitution? Everybody goes, no, we're not changing the Constitution. That's blasphemy. You can't do that. Why can't you do that? Well, because it's not done. Well, why can't we do it? Well, be because... I mean, I don't know, this is just a thought experiment. But what if this person who's born outside of the U.S. has only been a citizen for like, just, just say seven years, just grasping? What if this person actually would make a great president? What if this person, just hypothetically, what if that person could be the greatest president our country's ever had? But we're so tied to something that's our tradition, that's our identity, that's our, just how we've done things that we can't pivot. And that's, that's the stress, that's the strain of Hebrews 7. That, that's why Jesus is demanding a, a change in, in our allegiance, a radical change in, in our lives. Jesus could not hold on to, um, or, or I'm sorry, the, the Jewish community uh, could not let go of their attachment to the Levitical priesthood. They couldn't see Jesus in the order of, of a high priest because he wasn't a Levite. You know, he's the priest that they needed. And um, the Muslim community today can't see Jesus as, as more than a prophet because Ishmael is more important to them uh, than, than Jesus. Uh, and, and Muhammad is more important to them because Muhammad comes from Ishmael. So, so Jesus, yeah, he's recognized as, as somebody that, they, that is in the, the school of their prophets, but he's not the greatest. So they can't let go of that. But this isn't a sermon about comparative religion. This is about us. And the pivot that Jesus demands of us. You have a hard time letting go of our sense of innate goodness. Who, you know, if you pull a curtain back in the deepest part of our heart, imagine ourselves to be scoring really pretty high on, on God's standardized test. And I have a really difficult time admitting I'm a sinner, and I need a savior. We have a hard time letting, letting go of our rightness. And 
and we get bowed up when people challenge us, when people question us, and our immediate instinct is to imagine ourselves as right, and no, they're wrong. And we, and we, we fight, and we insist on our rightness. We don't know how to ask forgiveness. We don't know how to offer forgiveness. And we have a hard time letting go of our superiority. We, we look at the people around us and we go, well, there's, there's, some, there's some winners, but I'm doing pretty good comparatively. Look at all these losers around me. People that have to just get their act together like I do. We have to let go of that. Jesus is demanding a radical shift in how we view ourselves, how we view him, how we view the world. We need a high priest who can take our sins away, who can make us new creations, who can teach us to love our neighbors and to serve them. Because that's how great he is. This is our response. It's the same response that Abraham had when he met Melchizedek, to, to see Jesus as our superior, as our Lord and our King, and to worship him, and to recognize you have authority in my life. You can tell me what's what. You get to call the shots. I don't. I, you are my Lord, and I'm your disciple. But, it's, it's, but it's, it's more than just him being your boss. We do it because we love his greatness. We do it because we love him. And one practical application of that and I'm not making this up. I'm not playing the greedy pastor card. There's a tithe in here. Where we get to put our money where our heart is. And Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all that he had won in the war. And there was an interesting study a couple of years ago. This is recent by Barna. Um, and uh, it's called the, the State of Generosity in the church, among evangelicals. And what it revealed was only two out of five Bible-believing, church-going evangelicals tithe. 25% of Bible-believing, church-going evangelicals give any, they don't give anything. And then there's another group in the middle that's sort of in, in between. Um, the call is to tithe. I mean, I'm just letting you know what the Bible's telling us. It doesn't mean it all has to go to the church, but when you take a tenth of your money, you go, man, that's a lot. But then you go and you look at the sale, you know, ads, and oh, 10% off, you go, why bother? Well, look, if, if you're somewhere in between, um, you, you have to reckon with Scripture. And if you need help moving from 2% to 5%, make that a goal. If you need help moving from 5% to 7%, make that a goal. If you need help from moving from 7% to 10%, make that a goal. If you want to go beyond 10%, God bless you. But that's an indicator of whether or not we really believe how great Jesus is. Do we worship him and trust him with our stuff? Why would we do this? 
unless we expect and have received from him a blessing. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, gave him God's blessing. Jesus doesn't just give us God's blessing. He is God's blessing. When we leave, every Sunday we leave under God's blessing, Jesus is God himself blessing you. When you're united to him, when your corporate identity is in Jesus, you and I have God's blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for, for Melchizedek. <laughs> we thank you for this mysterious, uh, subversive, pivotal person who disrupts our uh, Christian and Judah, Judah, uh, Jewish and, and Islamic understandings of what's what. And Lord, we thank you for how he points us to Jesus. How he points us to one who demands uh, our our loyalty, who deserves our worship because you bless us through him. We're grateful to be under your blessing, to know your love, to know your good favor through our high priest Jesus, our King of Kings. And Lord, I pray that as we go out into the the week, as we continue our worship, that we would know that, that this favor is ours that it would change us, that it would change how we view ourselves, how we view our neighbors, how we view the nations, indeed how, how we view you. And we pray that it would be true for our whole congregation, this whole church, and we pray in particular for several families, uh, for Ron and Bev Schubert.